Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. My wife is a healthy eater. She loves to eat healthy foods. We, uh, she is a great influence on me. We always have fresh fruits and vegetables in the, in the house. When we lived in Ecuador, we would go to parties, and you're always supposed to bring something to share to a party, and most people would bring cachitos, which are the Ecuadorian version of Cheetos. They're puffed, puffed corn product um, coated with a little bit of cheese flavoring, probably mostly manufactured from corn. They're delicious. They're delicious. And uh, <laughs> so most people would bring that. My wife would bring a bowl of cut cantaloupe. And uh, the, the host of the party would, would think, what do I do with a bowl of cut cantaloupe? Because the gringa is the only one in the, in the country who would think of bringing a bowl of cut cantaloupe. And so she, uh, she kind of got a reputation. Our pastor would, would joke with Alyssa a lot that, you know, we, we missed you at the party because nobody brought strawberries. And, um, so we were at the Roundup Parade last, yesterday, and, and she, was, she was just wondering which of the trucks is going to be throwing out bags of carrots, and none of them were. Um, I, like, I like that she, she eats that way. I like, I like, I like healthy food. Um, I put blueberries on my oatmeal this morning. And they were delicious, you know. Blueberries with heavy cream is delicious. <laughs> and uh, it, we, uh, I like a lot of flavor. I like, I, th- I think that uh, our our scientists are really smart. Um, they don't, they don't modify the genes of corn to make it less delicious, right? And so I, I like corn products. Process like I bought my favorite snack over the weekend, which is flavor twists. And those are extruded corn product flavored with various, various types of corn seasonings. Uh, and they're just, they're delicious. There's dextrose in them. And I mean, they don't make that stuff to make it not delicious. Um, so all of this means that I, I am frequently not uh, welcome at the grocery store. Because she'll say we need berries and I go to the cereal aisle for Captain Crunch. Um, <laughs> Because crunch berries, man. Sure, a blueberry is delicious, but crunch berries, like... Anyway, it's next level. Thank you. Uh, this, I, I believe that I am fully living the human life when I, when I say that. I, I wish that there was a label in this world that would tell us when the high fructose corn syrup is from genetically modified corn. Like I, I say, I've told a number of people that I, I want my entire diet to include foods that have high fructose corn syrup made from gen- genetically modified corn because it's got to be the most delicious high fructose corn syrup, right? So I, I think this is like the most human thing in the world, though, because, because we, are, we are constantly people who are looking for like what's next and what's bigger and what's more tasty and what's, what's more exciting. This is how children go from the game of jumping off the bed to pretty soon climbing up on top of the roof of the house to jump off the roof because we're not content with just jumping off the bed. We need to push the limits and see, see how high we can go. And so we, we've taken the humble blueberry and we've made crunch berries. And this is, this is human life. So I'm starting a new series in, in the book of Romans today. Next week, I'll go through some of the history and background of Romans. I'll talk more about 
where Romans comes from. Suffice it to say for this morning that Romans is a book that comes um, to us from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote this book to a church that he had never visited, and he wrote this book to curry good favor. He was, he was trying to build a relationship with a church he had never been to, never, never, he didn't plant the church in Rome. He wanted to build a good relationship with them so he could use Rome as kind of a jumping off point for, for mission activity from there. And so in this letter, he gives a summary of all of his teaching. <clears throat> and this summary is, is a pretty methodical summary. He goes from, from beginning to end. He goes from, from humanity needing a savior to a savior to exactly what can happen in the life of a believer when a person accepts that savior and lives with that savior. And so today I'm looking at the first I'm going to skip over, actually, the first few verses of the book because I'll go back to that next week. Uh, I, I wanted to start in, in Romans 1.16 today because this is, this is the theme of the, of the chapter, and then I'm going to go through the end of, of the chapter. This is the theme of the book. This is like the thesis statement. Romans 1.16 is the thesis statement of all of Romans. And so I wanted to start there, go through the, the rest of this chapter, deal with a passage I don't particularly, I'm not excited about dealing with, but I'm going to deal with it because here we are. And then I'm going to go back next week and give more more background and history and that kind of stuff. So this is really, though, this is the theme of what I want to say. That I'll, I'll talk about, like, philosophically where I'm coming from a little bit more next week, but this passage helps us understand the way that I I want to frame the the letter of Romans for us. And so I'm going to start in Romans 16, 116. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'll read it for you. It's here on the screen as well. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So people who have been around the church for a while, we understand basically what this, this verse, these verses are saying. We understand the gospel. We know the gospel is the message about Jesus. Oh, the good news. <laughs> Sorry, I got ahead of myself. The good news. I'm reading from the, from the New Living Translation, and it says the good news. Most translations say the gospel. Good news and gospel, it's just like, well, gospel's kind of a made-up word. Uh, good news is a direct translation of the Greek. So it's, it's good news. It's, uh, it's, it's gospel. It's, it's the good news. We understand that this is the message about Jesus. And then we understand as, as Christian people, we agree that the good news saves us. And we understand as, as church-going people who have heard all of our lives or all of our Christian lives that we need to be saved from sin, we understand what we are being saved from. We understand that, that we, we, need, we need forgiveness from Jesus, forgiveness from God through Jesus uh, in order to be saved, and, and we experience that by faith. And so we, we pretty much have an idea of what what Paul is saying in this in this thesis statement for the the letter of the book or the letter of Romans, but for people outside the church, I I think there's this is kind of foreign, right? Like gospel 
gospel is a super churchy word, good news. We understand good news, but when, when church people talk about good news, it's, it's sort of bizarre. Like, why would, why would church people, people who go on Sunday to be sad for an hour, uh, why would they talk about good news? It's just sort of bizarre, right? Uh, that, that we have this, what we call good news and gospel. Uh, people who are, who are not church understand that like gospel, it's a word about what, what church people believe, uh, but they don't know necessarily what it, what it means. It, it's something to do with Jesus, Bible, and, and maybe that's like neither here nor there. The, the, the thing that I think sounds most foreign to non-church ears is the idea that we need to be saved. We need to be saved from something that, uh, that we need to be saved. As Christians, we, we believe, we accept that, that everybody in the world needs to, be, needs to be saved from sin. And as Christians, I, I think we should recognize that this is easy for us to believe because we've heard it so much. We've heard it so much, and, and it is part of our culture as church people. It would, be, it would be hard to be a person who lives a good life, who's trying to live a good life without, without faith, because there are a lot of good people in our world who are trying to live without faith. It, I, we ought to recognize it would be hard to, to be in that position and to, to feel like you need to be saved from anything, that, that your life requires divine intervention for any reason. And so as, as Christians, the, this reality that sin, sin lives or sin exists in our lives can still be hard, hard for us. Like even as Christians, sometimes we forget that there are points in our life where, where we need God's intervention. As Christians, we're doing our best. We're, we're living, you know, pretty good lives. And even as Christians, at times, it can be hard for us to say, you know what, I still need God's help in this area. I still, and, and it's, it might be hard for us to admit that all the way until the day we die, God is going to be at work in us. God is going to be working in our hearts and trying to, trying to do, do his thing in our hearts. And so um, we, uh, we deal with this, this reality that God is, is saving us from something. And Paul doesn't want us to be, to be confused about what God is saving us from, what the gospel saves us from. And so starting in, in Romans 1 verse 18, through the first few chapters, he unfolds exactly what humanity needs to be saved from. And so he, he begins this way in, in Romans 1 18. I'll read through verse 20 first. He says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can, see, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So, we're starting out in verse 18 with, the, with God showing his anger. Uh, I'm going to come back to that at the end. I just, I'm going to skip over it for right now. I don't want you to worry. Don't worry. I would never miss an opportunity to preach about God's wrath. So, I am, I'm coming back to that. I'm not glossing it over. 
But for now, I, I want to know exactly what, what gets God's ire up. Why, why does Paul believe God is, has, has anger toward, toward humanity? Why, why does Paul say, and, and Paul is going to give like a, a, a really thorough treatment of, of what gets God angry in these first three chapters. But he begins with the idea that people suppress truth by their wickedness, that they do this because God has revealed himself through creation. And, and Paul actually believes that people are without excuse. People are without excuse for knowing that God exists and, and knowing about God because God has hidden his invisible qualities in creation. And then he talks about some visible things too, though, doesn't he? He talks about the earth and the sky. God, God is fully on display through creation is what Paul is, is saying here. And Paul, Paul isn't making an argument that uh, God exists, like he's not making an argument from, from nature that, that God exists. To, be, to turn this into a, an argument for the existence of God would kind of miss the point of what Paul is saying. Paul is just accepting as, as a clear fact that is obvious to everyone in the whole wide world because it's obvious that God exists and that God has revealed God's self through creation, that God can be experienced and known through creation. The point is that God has actually, God is letting people choose their own blindness to God. The reality of God's existence through nature is obvious, and Paul says God is allowing people to to choose blindness to that, and God is allowing it. God is, is letting people do that, and like it or not, God has, has shown who he is through creation, and God is holding people accountable for their unwillingness to acknowledge him as he is clearly revealed. And so Paul believes that people have chosen this blindness. He says they've chosen it. It's, it's obvious. And we'll get into a little bit more of, of what this means. But they've, they've turned their backs on the obvious. And Paul says that, that blindness, it doesn't, it doesn't end simply with not acknowledging God. But it goes on, and people, people not only, they, they don't acknowledge God, but they go on and they, they worship things that aren't God. He talks about that in verses 21 through 23. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. So Paul is saying God, God is holding people accountable for the fact that they know that God exists. The, the, the fact that God exists is never in question, right? And that... He, he knows it. According to Romans 1, these are people who, who live in a world where God's existence is obvious, but people are choosing not to acknowledge God, not to worship God, not to give God thanks. And, and they choo- choose not to find God, but instead of just not finding God, they create their own idea of what they ought to worship. Like their heart, their heart 
part of what God has created in them is this heart to want to worship. And so they take this heart that wants to worship and they find other things to worship. They make, they carve, carve wooden idols and, and put gold leaf on them. And they say, this is, this is the thing that my heart wants to worship. They, they make an idol and they, they worship it. Paul says it's, you know, it looks like mere humans or, or birds or reptiles. And, and so, uh, what they are doing is, is they're not worshiping God because they're making up ideas in their own minds about what God is, and then they're worshiping those ideas. That is idolatry. That is idolatry. It is, it is making things up about God, God who has clearly revealed himself. God who has clearly revealed himself through creation, God who has clearly revealed himself through his word. This is idolatry, is making things up instead of accepting what has clearly been revealed about God and worshiping that instead. And so this is, exact, this is what happens when people make idols. <laughs> and, and Paul harps on, on the Romans for making uh, idols out of the shape of birds and animals and reptiles that they've worshipped. And, and Paul is speaking to this culture that just accepts divine intervention in, in, in our world, right? It accepts that the divine, the divine is operating in the world. For first century Rome, there's no doubt that God is at work. People in, in the first century, there, there, weren't, there weren't atheists in first century Rome. Um, everybody believed that God, God exists. In fact, Christians were accused of being atheists because instead of worshiping the pantheon of gods that were available, Christians chose to worship one God, uh, which, was, which was bizarre. It was seen as atheism. And so when I start to think about how this applies to 21st century Christianity or 21st century world, uh, I, I'm particularly drawn to verse 22 where Paul says, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Because in our, in our modern enlightened idea about idolatry, we, it's pretty easy for us to say, it is, it's foolish. It is foolish to carve something and put some gold leaf on it and say, that's my God, and worship that. And that seems, that seems odd to us. That is foolish to us. It's, it's pretty easy for us to criticize you know, those pre-modern thinkers in, in first century Rome. But what Paul is condemning, I'm getting repetitive here, what Paul is condemning here is, is people who are without excuse for knowing who God is because of his invisible qualities that are displayed in the world. And, and instead of worshiping the God who is clearly revealed because of what God has done in creation, they worship something created, something less than the God who did it all. Uh, and so what ways has God revealed himself in creation? There's obviously like the physical beauty of creation, right? I was thinking about this, that uh, the physical beauty of creation is just gratuitous. Like mountains did not need to be beautiful. Mountains are beautiful. Flowers and stuff like, I was thinking about flowers. Flowers did not need to be beautiful and smell good. Like, they, they are that way, so they in, attract insects, right? Like, that, that makes sense. But why, why are there insects that are attracted to things different than what the dung beetle is attracted to? Like, the, 
flowers, God could have created bugs that were, were attracted to ice cubes, you know? Like God, the beauty in creation is, is just gratuitous. It is, it's, it's not necessary. God just did it. And so God has revealed, revealed through the gratuitous physical beauty of the world, but God has also impressed on every human heart certain desires and a certain understanding of what is right and wrong and what is just and what is unjust and what is true and what is false. And amazingly, those things that God has placed in every human heart are the exact things that point to God. Humans are in love with love. All of humanity is in love with love. And if, if we look at the way that God is revealed in Scripture, in, in the book of 1 John, it tells us God is love. That those who know love know God, and those who know God know love. Humans are in love with love, and it turns out that love is the thing that points to God more than anything. Jesus said the best way that a human being can, can honor God, the first commandment for anyone who wants to follow God, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second, the most, second most important is to love other people as, as you love yourself. We live in a world full of people who don't accept God, don't, don't believe that God exists, but they love love. They're in love with love. They worship joy. They love joy. They idealize peace. They say kindness is cool. And these are the very attributes that God has promised to impress upon his people, upon people as they draw near to God. The Apostle Paul called these the fruits of the Spirit. They should be naturally born in the life of anyone who, who draws close to God. And our world says you should try really hard to show love. You should try. You should really, really do that. Our world says you, you should do what you can to be kind. Kindness matters. You should do anything you can to experience joy and happiness right now. You should do that. And so maybe those first century people were fools because they claimed to be wise while carving images and worshiping those. Meanwhile, in the 21st century, we claim to have discovered the power of joy and we've discovered the power of joy, and, and to celebrate it, we've done this really wise thing. We've written it on, on a hand towel, and we hang it in our bathroom. Right? We, we are the first generation, 21st century, to tell our kids kindness is cool. It's so cool, we print a bumper sticker and put it on our bumper. So wise. We're so wise. In our wisdom, we quote to one another the proverb, Patience is a virtue. Good things come to those who wait because of our incredible wisdom. All the while, in our culture, we, we can forsake the God who has promised to help us to live in love and joy and kindness and patience. The God who has promised that the people who draw near to him will naturally exude those very things. And so Paul gives an example of how this comes out beyond worshiping idols and how, how it plays out in like the daily lives of people in, in verses 24 through 27. Romans 1, 24 through 27 say, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. 
As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned for lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. I'm, I'm really struck by Paul's description of God's action in this passage. God has abandoned them to do shameful things um, that their hearts desired. Other, other translations say God gave them over to their lusts. In essence, God has said to humanity, if, if you are not willing to accept me, go ahead. Go ahead. Go the way that you want to go. Go, go do what you want to do. And one step in the wrong direction leads to another and to another. And so Paul uses the example of, of human sexuality here. You know, God gave us the right and good desire for sex. It, the Bible is surprisingly pro-sex. The Bible, the Bible is, is a book that, that says sex is good. It says sex is good in the context of heterosexual marriage. Beyond that, the Bible says outside of heterosexual marriage, God's plan for us is celibacy. God's plan for us is to, to not be sexually active outside of, of uh, heterosexual marriage. And so, um, Paul, Paul lists this, that gives this, this example of, of an area where, where humanity has, has come away from his good plan and is doing what, what is not his good plan for humanity. Can I just say, I think this is a perfect example of, of how the truth gets distorted, how God's plan and how God's good design gets distorted. Because those of us who have, have homosexual friends and, and neighbors and loved ones, they will tell us they didn't choose. They didn't choose to, to twist what, what we believe is God's good plan for, for sexuality. They didn't, they didn't go out one day and say, you know what, God, God plans for, for heterosexual marriage to be the only, the only avenue for, for sexual practice. I'm going to just forsake God and go my own way. The truth has been twisted. We, we, have accepted, we have accepted what is not God's plan as, as okay. Um, and it's a really difficult area. <laughs> I'll be honest, I struggle with this every time I come to it. I hate pa preaching this passage. Uh, I'm glad to get it out of the way uh, as, we, as we enter the book of Romans. Because I don't, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand why, why, why I have friends who, who experience attraction to people of the same sex the way I experience attraction to my wife. I don't understand it. And I don't understand why then I get to live in, in the, the path that is acceptable for sex, which is heterosexual marriage, and celibacy is, is the only other path. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I believe that's what Scripture says, and I, I think for that reason, for that reason, I think this is a great 
great example that Paul gives of how, how God's beautiful design for creation is distorted by sin and, and is, is made what God never intended. And so Paul says it, at, at the end of this that they suffered within themselves the pen, penalty they deserved. Um, the church historically, maybe we would, we would like to really drive that home. Um, this is an example. Um, and, we, and we do see it. Like, not every sexual sin comes with immediate consequence, right? Like, there's some sexual sin that people live in for, for years and never experience an earthly consequence. But sexual sin, regardless of whether, whether homosexual or heterosexual sexual sin, it, it, it causes there are consequences for it. Um, usually with broken relationships, sometimes with broken people, um, and beyond what two consenting adults might, might experience, that there's the broader social consequences uh, that reveal the, the wisdom of God's, God's plan, right? Like, God's plan doesn't create unwanted pregnancies, and it, and it doesn't perpetuate sexually transmitted infections. Um, and so, this is the example that, that Paul gives. If, if these are not issues that you, you particularly struggle with yourself, just wait, Paul's got something for you too. Um, and so, so uh, we'll, we'll continue on. We, we won't keep you waiting. The way that, that sexuality has been distorted among humans is, is an example and, and Paul highlights a few other examples then in verses 28 through 31. He says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. I appreciate that that one's written specifically. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. When we arrive at verse 28, we read verse 28 on the heels of what Paul's just said about, about human sexuality, and we think, whoa, abandon them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Wow, he is really driving home the point, uh, the you know, about sexuality. Um, and then we get to verse 29 and we realize, no, he's not talking about them anymore. He's talking about every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate and envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious behavior and gossip. Uh, in verse 30, he says those are proud and boastful, disobey their parents, New ways to, <laughs> to break their promises. They break their promises, have no mercy. Um, undoubtedly, there are, there are people in a crowd this size that, that deal with the sins that are listed in verses uh, 24 through 27. Uh, in, in church, I think we tend to deal more with these, these with envy and greed quarreling, 
deception, gossip, pride, boasting. And, and as Christians, we have to admit, it's, it's a lot more fun to think about the sins we don't struggle with than it is to think about what Paul has to say for us and what, what happens in the walls of the church a little bit more. Paul, Paul lists these specific vices, but they're really all examples of trading that which is good that God created for, for a lie about it, for a deception about it. Um, and, and so we, we see that, you know, the first thing he lists is greed. Greed is just forgetting that our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that his, his children will never be lacking. Uh, he, he talks about hate and envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious behavior. These are trading God's love for a lie. They're saying we don't, we don't need to live in love. We, that's, not, that's not the way. Insolence and pride and boasting come for, from forgetting that God deserves glory and honor and thanks for every good gift. It's all trading the good things that God has, has given us for a lie. It's forgetting what, that God has made his invisible qualities obvious to anyone who is paying attention. And the ultimate consequence of this sin is found in verse 32. In verse 32, Paul writes, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worst yet, they encourage others to do them too. And I promised I would come back to God's wrath. <laughs> Here we are, back from verse 18. Uh, it's, uh, God's wrath can take the form of immediate decisive action, right? can take the form of immediate decisive action. We see... We, we saw that in the stories of Elijah that we just went through. Ahaziah falls through his, his seal, uh, ceiling. What's that called? Skylight in his house. He falls through. That's God's, that's God's wrath right there. Uh, that's God's judgment on Ahaziah. Uh, it, it can happen. Um, but Paul shows that God's wrath often looks like God's allowing people to simply experience the consequences of their sin. And the primary consequence of, of, God, of sin is simply separation from God. It is missing God's will for us. It is missing God's presence. It is, it is walking away from, from that which is good and right. And ultimately, it means an eternity outside of the presence of God. The Bible's word for this is death. This is death. This is, this is second death, in fact. Um... And, and so the inevitable consequence of trading the truth about God for a lie is separation from God. It is, it is death. It is an existence without God. And we'll have more time to unpack these, uh, this idea as we go through Romans. There's, there's some good wrath here. We'll, we'll get into it. Let me take us back, though, to the humble blueberry, you know, uh, created by God to nourish and sustain us. Uh, it's full, packed full of antioxidants to fight infection. It's, uh, it lowers your cholesterol. It's, it's good for you. It's good for you. Unfortunately for the humble blueberry, there is a sweeter and crunchier alternative. <laughs> uh, and I, I'll be honest, I've never woken up craving blueberries but I've kind of thought about, boy, what would a delicious bowl of cereal sound like right now? Um, 
In exchanging God's good design for us, we end up with an exaggerated, over-sweetened, unhealthy option. The good design of, that, that God has given us is, is summed up in the law of love, right? That we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. But we, we give love a bad name. We, uh, we turn love into what it should never be. We exchange the good desire that God has given us for love, and we, we exchange it for lust, or, or we exchange it for the need to control the other person. We, we trade the good desire that God has given us for joy into a selfish pursuit of more for me because I deserve it. We turn the good desire that God has given us for truth into a need to be right and to punish anyone who disagrees with me. We turn, we turn God's good desire for justice into a need to win at all costs. And all over our lives, we can see the way that God's goods, good desires that he's put in us get twisted into things that God would never, never want for us. And you know, they, sometimes it kind of seems right. Why shouldn't I win? I deserve it. Why shouldn't I have more for myself? I've worked hard. I wonder if this morning God's spoken to, to any hearts about the good things that he has placed in you that, that maybe have taken, taken a wrong turn. The good things that God has, has given you a desire for and, and instead of that desire leading you closer to the heart of God, it's actually taking you away from fulfilling the law of love. Today, today's the day to to ask God to start this in you, this journey toward, toward living like Jesus, to, to experience the good design of God for, for your heart. So we pray, I'd, I'd invite you to just, just be quiet in the Lord's presence. And invite God to, to search your heart and, and show you where, where the good desires that he's placed in you have taken a wrong turn. Where they're, where they're not reflecting his goodness that is in you. He's created, he's created them in you. And so as, as we pray, the altar is always open. You're welcome to pray down here. I'm going to give us some, some quiet time to, to just allow the Spirit to speak. To let the Lord show us how he could, he could take that good desire and make it new in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word that, uh, that speaks to us. It speaks to us so clearly at times. It's like holding up a mirror. We think, oh, those utter fools who, who worship created things, and, and then we, in our wisdom, we print joy on a hand towel and think that that's a, the way to celebrate the good desire that you've put in our hearts. Lord, may we not be, may we not be taken uh, down a direction that is against the law of love. That, that may, we, may we stay on the path that is what you have revealed through creation and, and through our heart's desires. 
as, as what is good and right. That we, may, that we may love you and love others well. May we not twist what you have put in us to make it self-serving, self-referential. But may we orient our lives toward you. We ask now, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, each of us. We ask that you would, you would reveal to us where maybe, maybe you would draw us back anew to, to the good desires that you place in our hearts that have been twisted the wrong way. And God, we thank you for your presence that is with us in this time of worship and will go with us into the rest of this week. We thank you for your spirit that guides us and draws us closer to yourself. And we thank you, God, for brothers and sisters to walk with. May we this week walk well in your spirit and in your love, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me? Let me dismiss you by reminding you that God has revealed himself through everything that is. He's revealed himself through the sky and the earth, but he's also revealed himself through what he has placed in your heart. A desire for love and joy, and peace, peace and patience and kindness. May you go into this week and find the, the risen Jesus everywhere you go. God bless you. You are dismissed.